Greetings and welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and my guest for episode 73 is famed golf course and sports photographer Larry Lambrecht. In issue three of the wonderful golf journal McKellar, created and published by Tom Dunn, my guest in episode 55, and the writer Lawrence Donegan, I was asked to write an opinion piece on drone photography. I'd hinted on social communication platforms my reluctance to embrace the medium, and this column was a chance to more formally voice my opposition to the reliance upon and influence of drones and drone golf course photography. But the piece was also a kind of pay-on to the previous generation of land-based photographers that I'd grown up admiring and whose work in golf magazines and books helped develop my own appreciation of golf courses and architecture. One of the foremost among them was Larry Lambrecht. For the last 30 years, Lambrecht has been one of the most talented and prolific golf course photographers in the business, capturing detailed illustrative images of the world's greatest courses for just about every major magazine. He also works directly for a host of golf clubs and for years published a popular series of calendars. Remember calendars, those things with dates that used to hang on walls? Lambrecht also deserves credit for helping popularize and bring to the American consciousness the coastal links of Ireland, which he began visiting and shooting in the mid-1990s, long before places like Connemara and Carn became additions to most travel itineraries. Those visits and his deep affinity for Ireland became the basis for his book Emerald Gems, which came out in 2004 and remains one of the most gorgeous books on golf course photography I've ever seen. Lambrecht studied photography and visual arts in college and began his professional career shooting athletes for a playing card company. Remember those baseball and football cards we used to collect and trade? That affiliation with sports photography eventually led him into the fields of golf, and his sense of perspective and unique eye for on-course features immediately made him a go-to camera for editors and clients across the industry. I played around with golf with Larry in early 2020 and will always remember the way he used his old Wilson Blade 8802 putter from just about everywhere on the course from 50 yards and in. I also remember just wanting to listen to him talk about his experiences traveling and shooting the most esteemed courses in the U.S. and the world, and also playing golf with a long list of different architects. This podcast was my chance, and now your chance, to hear what it's been like to run in the highest levels of the golf course and golf publishing business. We talk about the places he's been the architects he's known, and the state of contemporary photography, including, of course, his thoughts on drones. Mostly, it's a chance to get to know the life and thoughts of a unique artist who's been just about everywhere there is to go in the world of golf. This was another fun, wild conversation. Enjoy listening to Larry Lambert. You able to get out at all, or have you just been doing things locally? No, I um, I did a book on Waverly Country Club, uh-huh. and I did a course in Texas and Dallas. Um, I actually flew down to Ponte Vedra Beach to do the resort there, but I n- didn't go overseas. I didn't even think about it. So you have been able to to to, to fly, and and you haven't been cooped up in your house for for nine months. No, and then I had I had jobs in uh, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and you know stuff I could drive to that um, you know didn't put too much stress on my lifestyle, and uh, I covered the Wingfoot Open for Wingfoot, which was nice. Uh-huh. Um, so it was you know not the not the busiest of years, but I certainly wasn't 
you know, sitting on my thumbs, you know, wondering what I'm going to do next. So, what was Ponte Vedra like? That's the uh, you look. I'm assuming you went there to see the the work that Bobby Weed was doing on the on the ocean course. Yeah, yeah, I did the renovation. You know, every hole that he renovated there, which was all of them, uh-huh. and um, he did a really nice job. Uh, the only thing they hadn't finished, they were going to do a croquet court or something over by the signature hole, right by the clubhouse, but. It wasn't done when I was there. I may have to go back and do it. What was your impression of the work compared to what it had been before? Well, I hadn't seen it before, but um, it certainly had more teeth now than it did before. Is that right? Yeah, you know, he put more bunkers in and uh, made some of the shots more difficult. You know, it's kind of a you know a fairly challenging resort course, but it's also a private membership course too, so it kind of serves two purposes. Yeah, I, I know that. I think when he did it in the late 90s, uh, part of it was to, to try to bring back the old Herbert Strong character to the golf course because it had been more of the, you know, it had been modified so many times over the years. It had been uh, still kind of wearing the Robert Trent Jones remodel, uh, and then it had been resorted up. And I think now we finally got to go back and, and really kind of put some teeth into it the way it might have looked in 1930 when it, when it was a, a new Herbert Strong course. Yeah. Well, he also made the range a lot bigger and rerouted the finishing holes a little bit. And he created a few new holes that uh, really added to the course, I think. And they needed a, they needed more of a range because uh, with the amount of play they get sometimes, well, you know, every time I've been there for the last month, it's been jammed. At the tee times, they just go every 10 or 12 minutes or something and just flying through there. Yeah, it worked out really nice for him. I imagine over the years, you've been up to winged foot quite, a, quite often. What do you think of the new greens and the co- green complexes there and and, and how they functioned for the U.S. Open? Well, um, <laughs> I've been going there for a long time, probably 15, 20 years shooting stuff for them. And I think the expanse of the greens was really needed because with the speeds they run them at, they lost a lot of pin placements over the years. And um, I think it's something that was long overdue, and the tree cutting was long overdue. You know, the place wasn't healthy, and, you know, when you see fans on golf holes, you know there's something wrong. Um, I, I, the only thing I've, I didn't like is I don't like the way that the USGA sets up the fairways where they look like bowling alleys, where they're like straight runway little Just narrow. Straight, yeah, straight mowing lines instead of having like a little curvature to them. Yeah, I think it 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 takes away from the shape of the golf course and the and the routing and everything it, just then, and then now the trees are so far away from the fairways that the trees aren't in play anymore for the most part. You know, the fairways used to go out pretty close to the trees. Now they're, you know, 40 yards in from the the uh, fairways. So um, it's, it just, it just kind of looks odd sometimes. It's like if they were to build it all over again, they would have trees planted closer to the narrow fairways. And it would probably be more of a challenge to a lot of players to have trees in the ways. When there's no tree in the ways, you can see what DeChambeau did. You know, I got to hand it to him. He played some incredible shots, though, getting up and down and stuff, even though he was long. But um, Yeah, I felt that golf. was something that got over, you know, his length that week was overplayed a little bit. As far as it contributed to his winning the tournament and his success, his his short game and his putting were really why he won. You know, he was just oh, on no. another level than the rest of the field. Yeah, I mean, he was getting up out of that three to four inch rough and, you know, figuring out how to run the ball up into the openings in the greens. And, you know, I, I remember a couple up and downs he did. He said, I said, he's never going to get up and down from there. 
and he did. And, uh, you know, tribute to him. I mean, he figured it out. He wanted to do it, and he did it. I don't know if everybody was – that was everyone's favorite for him to win, but he certainly played the best golf of anybody, that's for sure. Yeah, the right player won, and, and he was just that much better than the field that week. You know, so when second place is five strokes back and at even par – uh, and you're five under and you win, that's that's a statement. Well, that's what usually happens there. I mean, I was there when Davis won. He won by 10. Yeah. You know, once you get breathing room from somebody on that course and the competition starts to squeeze a little bit, uh, it really brings out the worst in the in the competition. They really they really start to falter and push too much, and and the, the leader's just cruising. So, But it was odd being there, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, with a couple hundred people mostly uh, volunteers and some members and uh, support staff at the course. It's just weird following a major tournament with nobody there. <laughs> I'm glad I got to experience it, but I don't want to do too many more of them, that's for sure. Augusta, you know, what are they going to do in April? I don't know how many people are going to be vaccine- vaccinated by then, but... I don't know. I mean, if it, I, it wouldn't surprise me if they could somehow pull off like instant testing. And if, if you're negative, you get in and <laughs> if you're not, you send you back to your car. Well, they, they can always do that. They can um, just like they do it on the tour. I mean, when I had to go to the um, U.S. Open, I had to go to Rye Playland and get a test before I went on property. And then they, they text you online with some program and, you know, you're negative or positive, And then they uh, give you your credential to go on property. So they didn't. They wouldn't let anybody on property unless they tested negative. And um, I think that they're just going to have to figure out a way to do rapid testing for, you know, the masses to pull it off. I mean, it takes ten or fifteen minutes to get the rapid test, I guess. And if anybody's going to pull it off, I guess it'll be Augusta. That's yeah. That's what I was thinking too. They have to do it every day, though. <laughs> they would have to. Yeah, it would have to be an ongoing thing. Yeah, and maybe, you know, just cut back on the amount of patrons they allow on on property. Who knows? I was just thinking that, you know, you could just group the patrons like around Amen Corner and then that cluster where, you know, the second and seventh green are and those two tee boxes. And, you know, that would generate enough and maybe up around nine and 18, just limit it to those areas. And you'd have the kind of the, you'd get that that crowd noise environment that was so missing this year. Yeah. Yeah. Even uh, 16, the, you know, the par three, they can get... Uh, you know, people are so weird to see it without even stands there or, or any gallery to watch people play that hole. Um, it, just like a, people. just like a, if you were playing the golf course on a Wednesday in you know March. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, my, well, at least it gave the people a chance to see the golf course as it looks normally. Um, yeah, that's probably a good thing to, for people to be able to see Augusta Natural stripped down and just, I mean, it looks more like just a golf course rather than this cathedral of entertainment that we've come to know it as. Yeah, well, especially 18, you know, that you look up at that hole, the way they filmed it, um, you get the sense of what it looks like normally without a big gallery and towers and stuff all around it. Right, yeah. Which is a lot cleaner for most people to visualize what the course is really like. Well, Larry, I wanted to get back into your backstory a little bit and, and, and find out how you got into photography. Where, where did you grow up? Where's home for you? Bridgehampton, New York. I grew up a um, small potato farm town, sort of, back then. I caddied at Baidstone as a teenager. Uh, 
Didn't play golf, played baseball. Uh-huh. And I went to a Catholic school in Riverhead called uh, Mercy High School. Studied, you know, did some photography there, did the yearbook and all that stuff. And then went to the University of Denver and studied mass communications and minored in photography or art, whatever you want to call it back then. But and I had a couple of really good teachers that were professional photographers that, uh, you know, gave me a good basis of what the uh, art of photography was and I had a dark room in the house we rented, and we did the school paper, and you know, we actually did color development with chemicals back then, and it was you know, something you wouldn't do too often, but it was nice to do it just to understand it. What brought you out to Denver from New York? <laughs> I went to Fordham my first year, and being a country boy, you know, Bridgehampton was the country back then. <laughs> I didn't really care too much for the, for the Bronx, and uh, I had friends that, Went out to the University of Denver, and they said they really liked it. So I applied there and got in and drove out there. It seems just so random, you know. You could have picked a, any place way yeah. west of the Mississippi if you wanted to get away. <laughs> hey, I don't know. I just had some buddies that were out there. They said, I really like it. The skiing was good. And it was good hunting. And um, Had you ever been out that way before? No. No. It was my first time out there. Wow. Yeah. So back then, you know, you didn't apply to 15 schools. You know, you picked one or two schools that you wanted to go to, and you, you hopefully got into them. Uh-huh. You got the, yeah, whatever you got into, that was probably where you were going to head. Yeah, well, I, I applied to stuff up in Vermont and, you know, St. Michael's, and I think I think I applied to three schools. I got into Fordham, and I went to Fordham. And then I tried, um, I thought about going to Santa Barbara, and I decided not to think about that. And I got into Denver, and I just went there. I mean, my kids, they applied to 15 schools. Yeah, you that's the way you have to do it now, I guess. <laughs> I applied I applied to one school. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just... I knew, I knew that I, I pretty much had one choice. That's what we could afford. Lucky yeah, I got yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, Denver turned out great, though. I, I love skiing out there. I love the, the lifestyle. The school is much smaller than it is today. Denver was much smaller than it is today. Uh, you could, you know, go downtown and park anywhere you wanted and, you know, see live music and sporting events. So about about what year would this be? Uh, early 70s. Okay. I graduated in 75. All right. My family moved to Colorado uh, in, I think, 73. Yeah. No, I loved it. You know, from Red Rocks, and, um, you know, there was no tunnel then. We had to go over level and pass to go skiing. And when the weather was bad, we'd drive down the foothills and go right to Taos because uh-huh. it was a straight drive to New Mexico without you know going over a pass. Yeah, um, but it was beautiful out there. Uh, I had a good time. A lot of good photo projects. Uh, you know, great art museums. Uh, school was good. Had a great faculty. Uh, I think it was an underrated school at the time. It, it had a lot of good programs. I really enjoyed it and. My my teachers were very good. My photography teachers were, you know, no-nonsense professional photographers who, you know, showed us the land and and um, also showed us the business side of it. And, you know, that was helpful in mass communications. We had some guys from CBS that were retired that were good teachers, and they had been in charge of big projects and stuff, and they kind of was almost being like an intern internship rather than um, a student with some of these guys because they you know made you produce 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very challenging. It was good. Have you ever seen the work of a photographer named Robert Adams? And he, no. he photographed, uh, he, I've got a couple of his books, and, and he was in working in Colorado at that time in the early 70s, maybe late 60s, early 70s, into the mid-70s. And, and he, he's, he's got a number of books that's just the front range of Colorado, scenes around Denver, Colfax Avenue, from that same t- uh, period where you were in college. I think you'd get a kick out of them because it really, I like to look at them because, like I said, my family moved to Longmont in like 73 and, and he's got a few pictures of Longmont in his book and you know it's kind of reminds me of when I was a, a real young kid you know what I remember from the town and from our trips down to Denver for that time yeah I'm not familiar with him but I'll certainly look it up yeah I was a I was an Ansel Adams fanatic um, yeah he had he had stuff in the uh, Denver Art Museum that I used to go look at and um, I still kick myself now there was a a print of that uh, Moonrise over Taos. Uh-huh. Like a 16 by 20, it was $400. And it was the original print? Yeah. Oh, God. And, um, <laughs> you know, $400 was a lot then, but Jesus, what it would be worth now to oh, have that. I can't even imagine. <laughs> or just to have it, you know, regardless yeah. of the value no of kidding. it, just to have it. You yeah. Know, it's uh, one of his prints that he did. You know, not not some print off one of his negatives. It yeah, was not the, he made. when you go to the mall and, and buy the, the poster of it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so um, what what turned you on to photography? What was what was in your in your background or your childhood that made you interested in the visual arts? Geez, I I, I don't know. I just uh, picked it up and liked it. And um, was it the, was it this did the act of of holding a camera and 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 photographing things was is was it actually the camera that attracted you to it? No, I think it was. Um, I think it was the whole process of developing the film and making prints back then where you could have um, a pretty good challenge to making good prints. Um, the cameras um, made a big difference back then because the optics, um, the lens is always the most critical part back then with film, and the lenses added contrast and the, uh, vibrance to images. Uh, so I, I had a Pentax 6x7 that was a really nice medium format camera that, I took most of my stuff with when I was younger. And actually, the first golf course stuff I did was at Augusta during a practice round with my 6x7. When was uh, that? When you were still in college or after? Just after, but it was, um, I had it being somewhere in the 80s. And that's when you could go up to the uh, practice rounds gate and pay $10 and get in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was no, you it's a know, $1,000 ticket now. Whatever it was, I mean, yeah. Yeah, now you can't even get them. You got to get in the lottery or whatever the hell they do. But uh, you, you paid ten bucks and you walked in and you could take pictures. So I went to thirteen and did some pictures of, you know, Ray's Creek and the Zaleys were out real nice and uh, did some stuff of uh, twelve and thirteen and I don't know what other holes I shot, but I still sell some of the images of thirteen because the hole hasn't changed really. Um, I was just going to ask you if you if you look at those old prints and I, some parts of the golf course you probably wouldn't recognize. Uh, yeah, no, they're pretty much the same. They haven't changed too much, you know. And you get a, you get a hole like and that. Twelve thirteen are pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah. Except you know the tee box, you know, way in the back on thirteen, but you can't you can't tell that. And the towers, the the uh, film tower is still in the same spot. And, um, <laughs> Mostly, I'd love to see those foot, those prints just for like the trees and, and to see how you know everything's been planted and 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 matured and, and grown in, over the last you know that's we're talking 
40 years ago almost. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, um, it's amazing to know how much it hasn't changed, though, too. You know, they they work on the course all the time and extend the tees and everything, but you know, as they far got as it. They, they had it. They had it dialed in by then. You know, by the by the early '80s, I think they 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 had the course. Probably by the mid '70s, they had the golf course that they wanted, and then they made some agronomical uh, improvements over the years, and then they started tiger proofing it. You know, in the, around 2000, which were the big the changes. I think, you I, I, think I covered the event um, five times. A uh, couple of years for the um, Masters Journal, and you know my responsibility was to photograph the trees and the crowds, and you know sort of aesthetic views of Augusta. And the other couple of times, I shot it for Golf Golf Week, and um, it's a pretty interesting tournament to cover. It's the only one in the world, you know, you don't get inside the ropes. Mm-hmm. So you're out there with the gallery the whole time and uh, hoping you can get a vantage point that somebody else doesn't have to get that shot. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget being on in the tower behind 10 when uh, Watson hit that curveball. Oh, you were there when Bubba Watson hit that. And you were, oh, yeah. We're, you were we're in the sitting tower? there going, yeah, we're, we're behind the green. There's like 15 of us. We're waiting for him because we know he had to chip out, right? He yeah. Nobody thought he was going to go for the green. And then when the ball comes on the green, everybody goes, what the hell was that? Where'd that come from? <laughs> that come from? <laughs> Some stray ball from another hole. Jesus. It was really incredible sitting there watching that. I mean, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Then when I saw the pictures that the guys had from behind him hitting the ball, I'm going, no wonder we didn't think he was going get, to get it there. Wow. Um, but that was fun to watch. I mean, it's, if, if you can be at the the uh, spot at Augusta when a major moment happens, uh, that's that's worth it. Because a lot of times toward the end of the tournament, you know, like if I'm positioned at a spot, you have to stay there because you can't follow a leader during that tournament because there's just too many people there. So you have to hold a spot and hope that when they come through, something good happens. And you hear these roars all over the place. And you go, oh, boy, what was that? Yeah. Damn, I wasn't there. And you can't be. Somebody I mean, photographer got that shot. Yeah, and you can't run and you can't get inside and you can't get an advantage point that you want. So you just have to be lucky. And that's why uh, I think Getty runs the show there. Now they have guys at every spot just sitting there waiting. And that's how they cover it. Yeah. How, what's your what's your opinion of Getty images? Uh, well, some good, some bad. <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think in golf's sense, they've kind of ruined it. Um, they've taken all the independent contractors out, and if they didn't take them out, they bought them out. And I just think it's a monopoly that the PGA Tour doesn't need to let happen, but they let it happen. Um, why do you think? Why do you think they let it happen? Why would they get on board with that? Um, I don't. Which know. is basically just just for listeners. Getty Images controls basically all the photography for for almost all sporting events now. I mean, they have their own, um, they have their own fleet of photographers, and and then they'll they they hire photographers. They they I don't know. Do they buy all the images? But they basically have control over most of what we what we see in in print media over uh yeah. almost a, a range of sports 
Yeah, the only exem- exemption to, exception to that is the local uh, news media. Like if, um, you know, for instance, Wingfoot. What's I'm that? Sure that <laughs> I'm sure the New York Times and the New York Post and the Daily News each had a photographer at the U.S. Open. Um, you know, as long as they tested negative. Mm-hmm. So that's the only issue. But uh, I was covering the Northern Trust at uh, Glen Oaks one year. And um, I was working for the club because I had been doing all their work over the years, and the PGA actually used all my pictures for the program and all that stuff. And they gave me a credential, and then I went to get the armband that lets you inside the ropes, and they wouldn't let me. They said, you can only shoot the gallery. Well, thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So just going to get back in my car and go home now. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I don't. I don't know what they're. You know, they want all the prints to go to Jet, Getty. They want all the business to go to Getty. Uh, they want Getty to get all the, the the rights and the commissions from the magazines and whoever else they publish for the PGA Tour. Yeah. Um, well, it's just it's just like all the it's just like golf writing. You know, it's there's you know a few independent outlets, but you know, the PGA Tour wants to control as much that's written about the players and the tour as possible. So, so much of it is in-house now and it, it's, you know, no surprise. They want to do the same thing with photography and control all the images. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad. It is too bad. Um, you know, but I don't know who's going to fight them though. I mean, if, uh, the money, the money, the money, you got to follow the money. Uh, obviously Getty's paying to, f- to get that privilege to have an exclusive situation with a sport. Uh, it's like Nike with the football uniforms. Yeah, everybody's got Nike football uniform. Was it the NFL? You know, I don't even. I don't even. I know in college they, they you can make uh, deals with. Uh, there's Adidas and Nike, and there used to be Under Armour, but I don't know. Does does Nike do all the NFL? I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? And I, think, and I think they're doing baseball too. I mean, that's you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how that works for everybody, but I guess yeah. it does. A great consolidation of. Business in America, yeah. ongoing. Uh, everything. I mean, look, Jesus, don't forget. Let's not hope Amazon. Let's hope Amazon doesn't start making uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've always known your work for for golf photography, for for golf courses and golf holes. That's that's how I came to know your product uh, right. over the years. But you, obviously, you you know you you film events and um, tournaments and and even other sports. But what's the best sort of live action shot that you've ever taken or that somebody might look at that image and be like, Oh, I didn't realize Larry Lambrecht shot yeah. that. Um, well, my, my best picture, I think that, um, was on a cover was, was remember travel and leisure golf. Yeah. I used to, I worked with them for a while. They did a story on the best photos of Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. And you know, that advertisement that tours running now better than most and all that stuff. Yeah. Of Tiger's putt on um, 17. Yeah, at Sawgrass. Yeah. Well, I was behind the green. Everybody was in front of the green facing Tiger. Well, when Tiger made the putt, he turned around and gave me the fist bump. Oh, nice. So I got the whole sequence of Tiger making that putt and turning, pumping fists. (laughs) And that made the cover of TNL Golf. And it was voted by you know their editors as the best Tiger Woods shot. Excellent. 
Would, but my yeah. other action shot was, um, you know, I'm in the uh, NFL Hall of Fame, uh, 92 picture of the year. It was nice because it enabled me to go to the Hall of Fame induction and sit on the DS with all the inductees. And what, what was Gall- the shot? That was was that like a, the, from the Super Bowl that year? No, it was a um, a shot at the L.A. Coliseum with Rodney Hampton hurtling in middle midair over um, Gerard Bunch, his fullback, right at the goal line. Oh, wow! So. Um. <laughs> now, is that just a matter of uh, kind of being at the right place and having your camera ready and, you know, you, you're just firing away shots and you just happen to get this one perfect no. angle on this, uh, no, this football, amazing football, play? Football, you have to concentrate. You've got um, to sort of anticipate what the play might be. And when you're shooting with a big telephoto lens, you don't have a lot of people in the picture. In other words, you've got one player, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, with a 600-millimeter lens in the end zone, you're pretty tight, even though you can get back a little further at the Coliseum because the end zone's long because of the track around it. But um, that was a good shot. And um, So did you know, yeah, did, you, did you have a feeling that the play was going to be coming that way if you have to yeah. focus on a certain part of the field or some players? Yeah, you have to. I mean, even when it's, you know, third and long, you've got to pick the most likely receiver. That you want, like if it's just a Jerry Rice is in the yeah. game or somebody like yeah. that, you, you kind of want to key on him because that's the picture. You know, you can't be keying on a lineman or a running back when it's third and fifteen or something like that. Um, so you're, you're you you got to understand the game. It's like golf. You know, you have to know um, who's in the lead, who's making a run, um, angles to be it to capture the moment that the guy's going to produce, like. You know, everybody covered Tiger. Uh, you know, almost got to the point where the whole press corps was following Tiger at some tournaments. Um, you kind of had a, you kind of had to have an understanding of his game and what he was up to, and what kind of shot he was going to hit. And, um, I remember covering one of his early events up in um, upstate New York. What was the name of that event? It was that little? Little tournament he played in, and I left him alone because he was like out a BC Open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was in the woods a little bit, and um, I figured oh, I'm not going to cover him here. He has no shot at the green or anything. Well, he hits a sweeping hook that hooked about 80 yards around this dog like. I said, "Geez, I'll never underestimate that guy again." <laughs> I mean, he he can do stuff with golf balls that. Um, yeah, you know, it's like that Bubba shot at Augusta. You, know, you just you can't underestimate the talent of these guys and what they're capable of. Well, going back to the Island Green at Sawgrass when Tiger made that putt and you said he turned in and you got the shot. Did did Tiger know you were there? Do you, do you have a, any kind of relationship with him? Did, was that on purpose or did he just happen to look at you? Uh, well, he didn't look at me. He just happened to turn that way when he did the fist right. bump. Yeah, and um, you know the other guy's got his back. And I got him face on. So it was just a matter of him, you know, arbitrarily responding to the event. You know, I don't think he plans anything. He just lets it go. Right. You know, whatever happened, he doesn't, he doesn't know where the cameras are. He doesn't know where anybody is. And um, all these years of being in the golf business, I've never met the man. Never said hello to him, nothing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 
it's pretty hard to, to get any of his time or his attention. <laughs> well, I've been in instances where I'm, you know, I'm close to him. Like he, I've been at medalist playing in a hole behind him and he's, you know, he's in his other world, but he doesn't hang around and uh, talk to many people. I, no, I don't think, got, and I don't think he seeks out photographers on his own. Well, even, he wouldn't <laughs> even know I was a photographer. I was just playing as a guest there. Uh huh. Yeah. And a you know, fellow golfer, but, uh, you know, maybe with his son and everything being so prominent now, he'll loosen up a little bit. Who knows? So you got into photography because of, you know, you kind of, you, you said you liked the the developing of the print and that kind of process of producing the photo even more than, than taking the photo. You know, at some point in your career, that all went away. Is that something, I imagine that's something that you miss. I mean, does the does the profession feel radically different now that you're not uh, developing your own film? Well, it didn't change at all, really. What happened was you learned the computer. And the computer took over the aspect of developing the print and the film. So it's less tactile now, but it's there's still an art to it? Yes, definitely is an art to it. There's an understanding, and you can also create your own style with colors and um, contrast and you know, composition it's it's basically the same thing only instead of chemicals you're using electronic devices to change your image everything's captured digitally as a raw image uh, you know raw image is like the negative it's like the how the camera and the lens saw the image in x's and o's for um, the sensor and what you do in the camera is, I mean, the computer is do things that you could never do before with film. I mean, the range, the dynamic range of prints today is so far past what film could possibly do that um, it's just amazing. So it's a lot better than film used to be. Right. Well, how, how important is it that, I mean, you still have to get the image up front, right? You, how, how important is that now in the process? Has that diminished the actual being in the right place, you know, finding the angle, finding the perspective, uh, has that element of photography lessened? No. No, you still have to have that. You have to have an eye for it. Um, I think too many of the drone guys shoot too high. And, you know, I don't particularly like the overheads looking down on a green, I guess, for architectural mapping or something. It's interesting, but I've always been hung up on the idea that I have to show the player's perspective. Even if it's just a little higher than he's standing, but it gives him a bit, little bit better luck, look at the bunkers and the greens and the fairways. Uh, I still think it's the player's perspective and it's not distorted. I think, I think the drone has been overused a fair amount and and yet, as as a working professional, you have to operate with the drone. Yes. Well, the other thing, too, is, you know, I used to fly a lot of helicopters around. And um, I think I've had enough of the helicopters and I've got enough hours in them that I'm still alive. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> Well, that was the old way you did it, right? I mean, you, you yeah. would, you'd have to hire a helicopter and you'd, I don't know if you we would hang out the window, but you kind of have to get that... Air, that's how you got the aerial angle on those. Right. We, we take the door off. I wouldn't hang out. Some guys hang out. I've never hung out. Uh, but you'd shoot with the door off, 
And, you know, sometimes you're at 50 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet. And if you need an overview, you can go up, you know, a couple thousand feet and shoot down on the course to get the whole layout of the course. Um, but it was expensive, and I thought it was dangerous after a while. I just, you know, I'd fly to fly with people I didn't know. I didn't know their equipment. I'd fly into a town and find a helicopter pilot and, you know, get an hour's worth of time and go fly. Um, I think I threw the dice enough, and I was done with that. And, right, and drone, now you don't have to do that anymore, so that... That's no. that's what the drone enables you. Does the does drone photography is it is it more is it more easy to take a good photograph with a drone than than what you basically spent most of you know the first part of your career doing is is walking along the ground and finding the shot. Um, or, or or the other way to look at that is, you know, social media has has made golf photography and we'll keep it to golf photography so prolific i mean you just scroll through instagram and there's it's photo 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 twitter photo 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 and so much of it's really good but have have our taste as viewers lessened because we're so exposed to photography like has our taste level diminished because getting a pretty good golf shot is much more i don't know and, and this is where you can come in is it easier now that it's oh, yeah. sort of lessened our our taste level well it's a lot easier because um when you think about it, guys are playing early and late, and they have their iPhone with them. You know, years ago, if you had a camera, you'd have to go out on your own without your clubs for the most part and wait for the right light and take a good golf picture. Now these guys are, you know, they're playing at dusk, and they see these great um, landscapes, and the iPhone is, you know, 13 megapixels. Um, you know, I just did a book with Darius Oliver, and uh, the pictures of Pine Valley in there were taken with my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I mean, they were great. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just uh, you know for a five by seven or an eight by ten, even by eleven by fourteen, the iPhone makes good prints, and that's a big enough for a magazine cover. So, um, I think what's happened is. The availability of the capture device, the iPhone, is so everywhere that that um, it's just easy for everyone to take a picture and to point the iPhone at it. The algorithms that Apple has um, developed are just fantastic, and you don't even have to retouch them. You know, they're, they're saturated, they're sharp, they're vibrant. Um, it's just... <laughs> so what does that do for, for your field, your profession? Uh, <laughs> I mean, is, is there going to be a point in the future where <laughs> there are no more professional photographers? Or, or, there's, or does it just diminish the level of professionalism? So you have, now you're going to have, you know, 50 guys who are out there and they're known for their Instagram feeds and you might, and a, a publisher might go to one of those guys to get a golf shot when they need it. Um, it's happening. You know, there's guys that are doing this work for peanuts and, you know, just, they just want to get published. And, um, I wouldn't want to have to go into this business now. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm 66 and I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, I've seen it change from, you know, where you really had to have 
a good camera and film and you had to travel and you had to wait and you had to hope for good weather and um you know a lot of trips to Ireland I took I didn't even bring my golf clubs I had so much equipment um you know I had 150 rolls of medium format film with in lead boxes so you can go through x-rays and then you had your cameras and tripods and uh then you had to have all these bags that you had to label each roll of film as you took it and the date and the processing you wanted on it. And um, it was a lot more involved than having a digital camera today. You just take pictures and it all goes onto a, a flash card and um, you stick it in your computer and voila, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was more difficult back in in the days when I was shooting Ireland and, you know, I'd have to get up at daybreak and lug all that stuff around. You didn't have carts. And it would, and it required, I mean, the, the real point is, I mean, you can, I guess up for debate is whether the end product, the photograph was better when you were doing it then. And, and you had to go through all of this process versus now when the guy can pull out his, his iPhone, but it all speaks to, sort of an experience and a level of of uh you had to be good at what you had to be really really good at it in the environment that you're speaking of when you were yes. taking all this and and that is kind of what's gone what's gone away is uh it, it's made it easier to take great photographs and, and there's a skill level that is diminished that's not that does that's going to go out of existence at some point yes and it's a lot faster working with a drone you know, I don't have to physically, you know, put the the ladder down. You can literally stand in one place, right? You don't even have to know the golf course. I, mean, I don't do it that way. No, no, I, lot, know, I know guys, you wouldn't because you have a you have a lifetime of of doing it one way, and, and you have to, you know you're a professional. You need to know the material. You have to get familiar with it. But it's possible for somebody to go stand in a parking lot and fly a drone over a golf course they've never seen before, and probably get some some really great shots out of that. Yeah, yeah. How it's how that, how would when when you were working uh, with with you know the time before drones, how long would you typically want to spend on a golf course just getting to know the golf course, just just understanding the golf holes, the angles, the features, the routing, at least a at least a morning and an afternoon. You'd have to, and 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 you'd spend that time because you wanted to get to know it because you're hunting, you're hunting spots, right? You're you're trying to find out where you need to be to take the photograph. Right, and I'm evaluating the light. I want to know where the sun comes up, where it goes down, which way the hole runs. Um, you know, if it's a treed course, there's limitations with shadows. If it's a lynx course, not so much because the sun's out on the grass almost till it goes down or as soon as it comes up. Uh, but in a treed course like a wingfoot or a... Saucon Valley or something like that with the you know, big mature trees. A lot of greens and um, interesting features of a golf course go dark if you wait too long. So, you know, sometimes you'd want to shoot two or three hours before sunset on some of these holes so that you have light on the subject. Um, and those are the kind of things I scout. You know, I'll take a scorecard and I'll, you know, put down uh, not later than 4 o'clock on this hole or that hole. Um, you know, this one I can go to the end and go sunset with this one, you know, stuff like that. So that's what I do scouting. I would mark down, um, 
the uh, the parameters of when you should shoot and when the best light is on that hole. And then you just have to hope the weather cooperates. And when you get there, it's you know nice puffy clouds and sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is another you know variable that you can't predict. So you know it just takes more time sometimes. I will I will make one more comment about drones. People who know me and and know the the podcast and my writing know that I'm not a huge fan of drones either. You said something interesting about how you wanted to always try to present a golf hole or or a, a green or or bunker or whatever, sort of somewhat from the player's perspective, if not ground level, you know, just getting up just a little bit higher, but it's still kind of a, in a human proportion. One thing one right. thing I I think that drones do that, that I don't know that it has a positive effect is that when you get up high, you know, and you see so much of what's surrounding the hole and, and drones dramatize shadow and contour in a way that it, I think they exaggerate it actually, rather than reveal it in many cases. And you see these landscapes beyond the hole. And then often when you go and play the golf hole, you're down on the ground. So you never see that what the drone is, drone is capturing. There's all these off Right. golf hole areas there's there's a famous photograph from the southeast it's runs in magazines all the time it's uh there's a it's called the curry club and it's on the border between georgia and south carolina and, and you see these ads for it and it's it's spectacular it looks like these holes are walking this mountain ridge these two holes <laughs> and you see the background and the valley below and and I mean, you just cannot wait to go play that i mean it's it's one of the most extreme landscapes and it looks fantastic and when you go play those golf holes you don't see any of that all you see is this this one kind of punishing uphill hole you know you got to hit an uphill drive and then an uphill uh, approach to the green that you can barely see because it's kind of blind and you're thinking you're like is, is this even the hole that i saw in the magazine this doesn't you know i'm not getting any of that experience that this overhead shot gave me it's just a very ordinary hole and i think that drone photography often does that it 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 um it elevates the things about a golf hole that really aren't that important and it's not what you experience when you're playing it no, it's um, it's deceiving, is what I what I used to call it. It, it makes you uh, closer to things that are around the golf course that you're really not close to. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, a lot of places, it's nice to have that. Like when I did Trinity Forest, if I get up high enough, I can see downtown Dallas, which is kind of neat. It shows you the proximity of the golf course to um, a metropolitan area uh, or in a lot of cases to the water like um, you only see the water a couple of times at Ponte Vedra Beach but if you go up 50 feet you see it on 10 holes right so, not, not that the player will ever be up 50 feet I no mean, you, it just gives you the proximity of the uh, the golf course itself to the ocean which is Kind of great for advertising and interest, and you know that's why they call it the ocean course and all yeah. that stuff. So, um, you know, even like a Maidstone, there's you know a couple of holes on the water there. Yeah. Um, but if you go up higher, you can show everybody that the place is right on the ocean, primarily. Uh, you know, Shinnecock doesn't have any ocean, but everybody thinks it's on the ocean. It hasn't been to Long Island, but you know, it's not even close to the ocean. Unless you get up high enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you get up high enough, you, like at Wingfoot, you can shoot the ninth hole on the west course at Wingfoot, and you can see Long Island Sound. Yeah. It's not that far away. <laughs> but you're never going to sense that you're close to it playing the golf course. <laughs> it doesn't have that feeling that you're close to a big body of water. No, it's very, very, very um, 
this deceptive the the drone stuff well, it can that brings up another another kind of issue is what is the what is how do you view the role of golf course photography? I mean, is the role of a, of a photographer and the product that you produce to, you know, depict and explain a golf hole to show the architectural features, or is it, is it to basically, is it for marketing? I mean, how have you approached that, you know, in your career? Well, a lot of my clients over the years have been architects. So in that respect, you know, the, the player's perspective is appropriate um and i've stuck to that for the most part you know once in a while a resort or um, private club will have a view that is you know not the player's perspective but it shows a great the great ambiance of the club the atmosphere of it the environment the whole thing so it's more of an environmental print like i was at eastward ho and i went out over the water and kind of showed the whole clubhouse and a few holes and the ocean behind it and all that stuff and that's, you know, and a lot of people like to know where they are when they're at a golf course, not necessarily what the golf course plays like. So you get different requests from different clients as to what the uh, objective is of your project. And that's what, I, that's what I always tell clients. You tell me what you want. I mean, if you want just the golf holes or you want overviews, do you want, you know, clubhouse from different angles? Um, and, you know, most of them, you know, we'll go for mostly the golf course, but they would like to have a couple that show the, the whole property or a view of the property with the, the city or the ocean or whatever their main feature is in the background, whether it's a river or a mountain, something like that. Like when I was doing Waverly, they wanted shots with um, the river that runs next to the course and then Mount Hood in the background, uh, which you couldn't do from the ground, but it just shows you the proximity of the course to Portland and all that stuff. I mean, you have. I mean, there has to be a, a certain amount of embellishment in the photograph for it to be attractive. I mean, you, we are talking about, you know, one of the things that as a kid, you know, growing up, and the reason I like golf courses is because I used to look at you know magazines and books, and I'd flip the page and I'd see a golf course from Palm Springs, you know, with this mountain and this pool, this you know lake with a golf hole on it, and the mountain reflected in it. And it, I mean, it, it looks like so exotic to me you know and that's what great golf course photography does it, you, you want to capture the audience and bring them in so a certain amount of embellishment you know of, of a something that's not quite real is important because that's the that's really the goal of it is to get people excited about golf courses it's just you know where does that i guess is that maybe there's a line you know where it becomes where you're basically packaging something that that's literally not you know attainable uh, <laughs> in a golf experience <laughs> Well, I mean, you've seen enough models in uh, magazines, women models. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, but the whole, the whole think- thing of photography is is to attract people's attention to your product. Basically, it's just yeah, um, and that's why that's why you've always been hired, right? Because you're one of the you've been one of the best in the business at it. Yeah, I mean, I make their product look good. I, you know, architects like me because I show the golfer's perspective and I make their work look good. Uh, I take it from perspectives that show what their philosophy of the golf hole is. Uh, it's not from the side or from, usually not from behind. It's, you know, looking at it the way the golfer's going to see it and how it's presented challenges to the golfer. And I, I always found that to be my style. And, um, 
I like that style. I mean, I don't defer, I don't get away from it too much. Mm -hmm. Um, like I said, only if it's, you know, some beauty shot that, you know, sunrise, sunset that is worthy of uh, a different angle. But, uh, I really work hard at getting the best perspective I can for, uh, a client that, you know, shows the golf hole as it was meant to be played. And I don't have any qualms about it. That's just the way I do it. Right. How, how, yeah, over the years, how, how much attention have you paid to your contemporaries' work? I mean, there was a period in time when, you know, there was a, a core group of people you would turn to to get golf course photography. Um, did you look at other somebody else and, and say like, ah, oh, you know, that's interesting what they're doing, or I wouldn't have done it that way, or or were you always you know focused on what you were doing? I was always focused on what I was doing. I know, even today, I don't look at anybody else's stuff. I um, I've been doing it long enough. I I just know what I want my pictures to look like, and a lot of people can recognize my pictures without even seeing a. Um, my name on them. Uh, and I like that. I like people to recognize my work because of my style. And I don't, I don't want to say I've perfected it. I'm still working on stuff today and, you know, I'm trying to work out stuff with the drone to get, you know, as good as angles as I can without looking distorted or too high. And, um, but the basics are still there. You still have to be there at the right light, the right time of day. And then you have to go on a computer and, and tighten everything up and um, just make it look like the best shot it can be. And that's, you know, that's as, as somebody who you know, you, you you obviously have clients, whether it's a magazine or or a club or, or somebody else. You're working, so you're working for other people, trying to carry out a task. But how much room is there in, over the course of your career for you to? Have, develop your own judgments about golf courses and and golf course architecture. I mean, have you um, have you you've seen? I mean, I, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of golf courses around the country, around the world. I mean, you must you must sort of develop a feel for for different styles and different themes and different looks and and maybe even things that you you prefer over others. Uh yes, yeah, it's it's hard to deny that there's. Certain architects that uh, create different shapes and shadows that are more interesting to photograph. Pete Dye's courses um, are pretty amazing. Mackenzie's courses to photograph with the ragged bunkers, you know, the original ones. Um, Fazio always builds aesthetically pretty golf courses. I mean, his landscaping and treatment of hills and hollocks and hiding cart paths and all that stuff is so well thought out. I mean, you know, one of my pet peeves is cart paths and stuff like that. I just can't stand them. Mm -hmm. But um, he hides them. And it's really a... It's almost... you. We almost think that, that he could have been a great photographer because oh, he no, thinks he, he loves photography. You yeah. know what else he says? He says, the clouds make my courses look so good. If you have good clouds in there, and that's just the way I feel. You know, if you have great clouds and atmosphere and, you know, drama in your pictures. Yeah. You know, there's nothing worse than doing a whole shoot with a hard north wind and a stark blue sky. I mean, the sun's out, but there's no atmosphere. 
There's no well, that, feeling that's to the, it. That's the old Instagram thing. You know, if you got good clouds, even uh, even I can take a, a decent photograph, you know, if you've got some cool cloud patterns, you know, yeah. something happened in the sky. No, I mean, anybody can take pictures these days. Like I said, those iPhones are fantastic. They do great work. The settings, you don't even have to set anything. You just shoot it. And, but uh, Fazio can't control the clouds, but he can control what's on the ground. And I just, I've, I, you know, that's always been, it's always been a little bit of a knock on him and his architecture. It, it's that it's there to look good and the playability or, or how it functions strategically or, or the, the questions the golf hole poses are secondary compared to the composition of the features and, and how they look to the human eye. Um, but that I'll was, argue, that would, I'll, I'll argue with you on that one. You will. Yeah. Because I think, um, Tom, what he does is he finds what the client wants. Like when he built um, Eagle Point, mm-hmm. or I think they had one of the, I think they had the uh, Wells Fargo there when they were doing something to the other course. I mean, th- those guys wanted a com- competitive golf course, and he built a, a competitive golf course for them. But if you have a resort and you want to get people around and have fun and score, and not be looking for balls all day, he'll build that kind of a golf course. So I think the client drives what Tom Fazio thinks. No doubt. And, you know, he did a great job at Waterville when he created some new holes there that were links. You know, he did his homework and studied the other links in Ireland before he went to work on it. And um, he's a pretty smart guy. I mean, he's... he's um, He's very talented. I mean, look at the amount of, I don't even know how many courses he's done at this point, but um, he's done some amazing stuff. And he does all the work for Augusta and he does the work for Pine Valley. Well, so, that's a whole other issue we won't get into. But. Yeah, I, I know. I know. But they tell him what to do, but at least they trust him to, to do it. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with you that, that Fazio is, he, he, um, he, he selects his clients in a way, and he does a good job, and he gets people that he wants to work with. And he, I think he's very underrated for the the range of golf courses that he's produced. I mean, one of the yeah. one of the best golf courses that that he's done that I love is is Pine Barrens uh, at Worldwoods down in Florida, and it yeah. just is you know it, it's a really tight, beautiful course you know carved out of the sand. It's and it, it's a public golf course that you can play for an affordable price. That's great. And you know he did the same thing kind of recently at Congaree, which is a, a really interesting, cool yeah. look. Um, that's sort of unique in his portfolio. And then he has the, all the North Carolina stuff and, and you know, the, the big, uh, discovery, uh, land company courses and all that. So, I mean, yeah. it's, but it's a, it's a really interesting range of, of product that he may, he's developed over the years. And there's definitely, but I guess my overall point is there's a photographic element to it that the, the composition probably is, is forefront in his thought pattern. I mean, just look at what he did, at, you know, when he and Steve Wynn built Shadow Creek and how they're lining up yeah. features with the distant mountains and, you know, the, the tree lines and everything. That's that's real artistry. And so it's not a knock on him necessarily unless no. you're, uh, you know, I guess you can knock it if you're a certain type of, like, architectural snob. But um, yeah. but the, the point being is... You, I'm assuming you appreciate that as a photographer, the, the way that his courses are composed. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm, I mean. You know, some guys create shapes and things and shadows that, you know, middle of the day you won't see them. But, it, you know, an hour or two before sunset or an hour or two after sunrise, all these features show up because of the side light. And, 
Yeah, it's remarkable that you know a lot of architects thought like that. They did things that um, lent to photographic discovery and to replicating their work, you know, at the right time of day so that they looked the best and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, a tribute to those guys, and, and you know, the fact that he even thinks about it is interesting. Um, you know, there was an architect in Ireland that an old old friend of mine, Pat Ruddy, and. Um, he says, Larry, if I can build a golf course that people like to take pictures of, I've done my job. Which is we, interesting when you think about it. You, uh, your book, Emerald Gems, uh, you yeah. traveled all around coastal Ireland. Uh, I, I think you get every Lynx coast in Ireland. And it's a, it's an amazing book. I was looking at it this morning before we got on. And, um, you know, the, the, there's something – I'll get your opinion on this. Is, is there something about – being on Lynx courses, and especially in Ireland, that I mean, the, the you may not appreciate this, but they're they're so photogenic. They almost the the photo almost you know captures itself. There's yeah. just the way the light and the colors of Ireland. It's something unique about that, that photographic environment. Yeah, well, I'll put it to you this way: when I first went to Ireland, and you looked at pictures that the photographers had taken locally of the golf courses. I don't want to say they were terrible, but they were horrible. <laughs> it's just a distinction. They shot them in the middle of the day. They shot them when it was gray. It was almost ready to rain. I don't know what they were thinking. They just weren't, you know, it wasn't an issue. But I, but I, you get out there early in the morning, late in the day, and it's like a, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> I mean, as long as you've got three or four holes that are along the coast that run north and south and the sun goes down east or west, it's like... Wow. Um, and you get more sun over there than people think. You know, everybody says, oh, you go to Ireland, it's going to rain all the time, blah, blah, blah. But I've had so many, you know, good stretches of um, weather over there. Uh, you just have to be ready to go. I mean, if you get a good morning somewhere, you go somewhere else for the afternoon if it's going to be good. Um, you don't get greedy and stay around for two or three days and, you know, try to get every little possible ray of sunlight. Um, you got to work fast over there and you got to know where you want to go next that's close that you need to take pictures of and um, the the links over there they just I don't know they're just so natural and they have so many shapes and uh, levels of contour and elevations where you can get angles without the you know something like a drone or a hell I never shot a helicopter in Ireland everything I shot was from the ground you might have to go up in dunes you know, I always bought a pair of wellies when I went over there so I could not ruin all my shoes because everything's wet in the morning. Or, you know, after a rain shower, the, all that marram grass is soaking wet. If you go in it with regular shoes, you just, you know, ruin them. But um, you know, I spent a lot of time up in the dunes, you know, looking for angles to shoot certain holes. And it was just a lot of fun and a big challenge. And um, there wasn't anybody else doing it. You know, I was doing a calendar on Ireland before, you know, Ireland was crazy about golf, you know, for tourism. And um, my calendar, I think, helped, you know, I was, you know, printing something like 50,000, 60,000 calendars for the United States for paper wow. companies and liquor companies and uh, banks. Are calendars still a thing? 
I mean, is there any <laughs> market uh, I, there? I stopped it, but uh, there's you know there's, there's still a you know fair market. Some of the older guys still like calendars. They like to have it on their desk or their wall, and they you know keep their calendar in there, mm-hmm. their, their their days and appointments and stuff. But um, I stopped it two years ago. Um, and the sales had just gotten smaller, and I didn't go to Ireland last year, and so. Yeah. Well, you know, the, when you think of, look at all those pictures in your book about Ireland, I mean, they're they're luscious. Everyone is just so great, and and they re- reveal so much about each particular hole that you're that you're capturing. You know, because those those courses, you know, typically have so much character to them. But when you take Ireland as a whole, and you look at and you're flipping through the pages of this book, you realize that it's a very homogenous landscape. I mean, each little area is different. The dunes are bigger, smaller, but the, the, they all. It's interesting because they all. The holes, especially if you haven't been to all these golf courses and you don't have a, a memory of every hole, they all kind of blend together. And that's not a criticism um, of the book. It's it's just the the experience of flipping through this book if you haven't been there. Versus if you have a, a, a if you made a book about golf in the United States, you'd have mountain courses, you'd have coastal courses, you'd have parkland courses, you'd have desert courses. I mean, you know, like there's such a distinction of of landscapes that you don't find in Ireland. And again, that's not a criticism. That's just the way it is. It, Irish golf, yeah. Lynx golf is magical, but in a way, yeah. it's um, the the distinction is in the is in the very is in the details. You know, that they're um, at least at least when you're looking at photographs. Yeah, well, what you have to understand is the um, the financial aspect of my photography. Um, people from the United States don't have many ocean courses as a public golf course that they can go to. Um, and this was, you know, a lot of my work was done before Bandon. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so the fascination with Ireland for so many American and now European golfers is you can play along the ocean like a pebble beach or abandoned for 50 to 75 euros a day. And... You know, play the conditions of the British Open and all that. So, you know, it's all that, uh, that, that feel you get on the links that you sell. And people don't want to look at the Killarneys and the Mount Juliet's and the K clubs of yeah, Ireland because right. we've got those here. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of great parkland courses all over Ireland. I mean, there's hundreds of golf courses in Ireland, but the ones that the Americans flock to are the oceanfront courses i mean it's it's just it's just crazy you know golf in the ocean has been a mix that you know it's proven it works i mean you can look at kaiser i mean i think the first project he's done now inland is sand sand valley Mm -hmm. everything else has been you know he's looking for links along the water somewhere you know i was with him uh playing in the renaissance cup when we went to Barnbogle and uh, years ago and he looked across he says what the hell's that land over there I said I don't know the farmer probably owns that too he ended up developing that as lost farms lost farms yeah so you know there's a there's always been a connection with golf in the ocean you, you just can't deny it it's uh, strong it's potent um, it's exhilarating uh, it changes every day and uh, I think that's the allure of the whole thing is uh, Lynx Golf and the ocean just 
they turn everybody on. You know, it's just a good feeling when you get there. You know, it, there's a there's a sense of excitement. You know, to play Bally Bunyan or Royal County Down or Waterville or Tralee or you know Rosapenna. You know, all these courses are all different. They're in different parts of the country. They have different infrastructures around them. Little towns, big towns. Um, yeah, it's an experience. It's a it's a travel experience for golfers that you can't get in this country for the most part. You know, you can't you can't travel for uh, a week in our country and play ten oceanfront golf courses. Can you? Uh, I don't. Maybe if you're up in Long Island and you have connections everywhere, you can. Get well, you close. can't. You can't. You can't get on them though. I mean, the average guy can't do it. No, the I'm average saying. guy cannot at all. You're right. No, there's no way. So the average guy who doesn't belong to a club or or belongs to one club or something is not on the ocean, but he wants to play for a week of Lynx golf and get his brains beat out and wind and rain and walking and <laughs> caddies that they can't understand. Right. <laughs> they love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's the attraction to the whole thing, and then the you know the pub scene and the pints and the oh, stories. I love it. And, no, I I love it. It's uh, it's yeah. it's very it's Ireland is so unique. It's such a unique experience. It's 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 different than Scotland. It's it's its own. Like yeah. I said, it's magical. In the forward to uh, to Emerald Gems, you talk about Eddie Hackett, and you had a chance to yeah. meet him once. And you know, Eddie Hackett was sort of this little patron saint or leprechaun golf builder he started off and, and you mentioned this but he started off as a you know back in the early 1900s or 1920s or something 1930s as a club maker and then he became a golf professional it's just like just like you know in the old and pre-1900 era when when that was sort of the the donald ross way that you did it you worked your way up and then he became a golf architect and he developed a number of really famous now Irish Lynx courses. Um, And what was that like? I want you to recount your your memory of your your day with him. Yeah, I was playing golf at Port Marnock with these guys who were twins. They were Irish guys. And um, I already already confided in him. I was so interested in Eddie Hackett and all the work he'd done in Ireland, how underrated he was and how quiet he was. And geez, I'd love to meet him someday. And they said, well, let me call him up. Maybe you can go over and have tea with him. Wow. So um, they arranged it, and one noon time I went over there and had tea with him, and he had all his blueprints out. I think he had 13 projects that he was doing work of some sort on. And as you can see in the picture, I took that picture of him while I was there. Uh huh. And he was like the ultimate role model for a golfing professional. That I, that I think I have ever met. I mean, he was so concerned about Ireland and taking care of the clubhouse and the locker rooms and everything had to be neat and clean and uh, everybody had to have decorum and dress right. And, um, you know, he was, a, <laughs> he was a real inspiration to me as to how to conduct yourself in the golf business. And it always stuck with me. Uh, this it didn't matter that he was a golf pro or a club maker. Or, he was just a really nice man that was working in the golf business. And um, and he was genuine. I mean, you look into those eyes. That's the way they looked when I was there. I mean, he was, he was like, he's like a 
a saint or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was like I had an audience with the Pope of Golf uh, in Ireland. And his house was all tidy and neat. And he brought out little sandwiches and we had shared a pot of tea. And, uh, and we talked for maybe, I don't know, 45 minutes or an hour about his projects. And I, I told him what I was doing. I brought one of my calendars for him so he could see the kind of work I had been doing. And some of his courses were in them. And uh, he was very impressed and very polite. And I just had a great time. And I think that would be the only person I could have uh, spoke about if I was going to do that book on Ireland and the link specifically. Um, he was magic. Yeah. Um, it, it, when you're in Ireland, you're lucky to meet some great characters over there. And um, it's just. Great memories, uh, great people, great stories. Um, and he was so, you mentioned the word respect. He was so respectful of the land that he, he was a true minimalist, really. You know, we use that word a lot lately, but, he, you know, going back to his earliest days, I think he's be, really started laying out golf courses maybe in the late sixties, early seventies. But even back then before it was minimalism was popular, he had such respect for the land. Like he, he would try to just locate golf holes in the dunes and not move earth and yeah. just kind of discover. Well, anybody that, anybody that really understands links knows that the dunes were fo formed by nature and they will reform themselves by nature. If you mess with them, in other words, if you start tearing down dunes and building something on it, the wind in the ocean will come back and put the dune back where, they, where it wants it. Mm -hmm. So I think those guys in Ireland learned from past history that it's better to work around and through the dunes than to cut down a dune to make a fairway. And it's just a matter of logistics with nature. And most people haven't been over to Ireland in a winter, but geez, they get, they get little hurricanes over there for a week where it blows 70 to 90 miles an hour. And, you know, they come back in the spring and everybody wonders why this hole or that hole had to be rebuilt or changed because, you know, the ocean just came in there and did what it wanted to. So, um, I think the only time he used land moving stuff was building Waterville, but it was still minimalistic. You know, they just made it to shape fairways and not take down dunes, but to go around them and, uh, and, you know, circumvent them and still make good golf holes. So I think, um, he was a minimalist because they didn't have the equipment for one thing to do anything like that. But then, of course, he understood that the nature of the links is to leave it as it is and find the golf holes. You know, that's what they did all in the old days. I think Eastwood Ho was one of those where they found the golf holes. They didn't do any earth movement and stuff there. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's certain courses in our country that are still like that. And, um, you know, as Mike Kaiser says, I never found an old golf course, Larry, I didn't like. Well, you know, there's always yeah. some feature into it that, you know, because of the way they picked out the land and the way they designed it, that um, it has some sort of a natural feel to it. Is that the way you feel? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't like to blow up stuff and, you know, 
I don't, I don't like those. Unless Fazio's doing it. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what what went on at Eagle Point, but it, whatever he did, it came out nice, and the elevations were nice. And um, I'm not a you know I don't pick out any particular architect that I like or don't like. I think they all do good work for their clients, and um, you know the styles of a lot of them have changed to accommodate today's flavor of the month or year or whatever. And, uh, you know, if they weren't successful and capable, they wouldn't be in business. Um, some I prefer to play than other courses, but uh, that's just, you know, personal preference of mine. And, yeah, we all we all have those. Um, I yeah. imagine you've had a chance to play golf with a lot of your clients, a lot of the architects. Uh-huh. Who have you enjoyed? Yeah. Who do you, whose company... Have you enjoyed most, or or who have you who have you played with that you that you've enjoyed playing with, regardless of whether you know you personally love the work, <laughs> or, or um, you probably do like the work, no. but it, you know that no, say, putting that aside. Um, I think the first architect I played with was Tom Doak, and we played Crystal Downs. When was this? Like before. Before he was Tom Doak, you know, back when he was getting started. Yeah, yeah, and um, that's a pretty good way to get into it, right? You know, you, you yeah, meet like I, the. Um, you're gonna hate this, but I didn't like Crystal Downs. I thought it was goofy. Well, there's one old golf course that you didn't. <laughs> there goes Mike <laughs> I, Kaiser's. Uh, yeah, well, you know, there's Doak. gonna be there's gonna be exceptions, but I just thought there were holes on that course that were ridiculous, and. Um, they probably yeah. needed to move a little more more land than they did. Yeah, they needed to reshape some things. I mean, I, I remember going to one hole on the back nine, and Tom Doak tells me, don't even try to hit the green. Just hit it short right, because if you hit the green, it'll end up short right anyhow. I go, oh, that's a good golf hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I played with David Kidd. He's fun. David's, uh, David's a good guy. Uh, we played national together one day, and it was blowing 30. I think we both shot 95. Uh-huh. Um, that was a lot of fun. I played with Reese Jones a couple of times. Reese actually got me on Augusta one time. We played Fishers together, and I played Maidstone with him. Um, he's fun to play with. He's always got a lot of stories. Yeah, Reese, and, Reese is great. Uh, what, was Tom, played- what was Doak like to play with? I mean, did you what? And what did you talk about? What do you? What was he focused on? The architecture, or just kind of explaining Crystal Downs to you? What no, kind of he was. Was he, he was. He was waiting to see how long it would take me to rip up my scorecard at Crystal Downs. Uh-huh. I made it to the fourth hole. He said, "Larry, most guys do it at the second hole." Because <laughs> you you were still <laughs> trying to make a score, and that's that. Well, I hit it on the, the green. I hit it on the green in regulation on one, and I think I three or four putted. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, um, were you still using? Funny. Were you still using that old Wilson 8802 blade that I saw you with? Yeah, I probably did. I, I've had one of those forever. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I could, it could have been persimmon back then. I don't know. I don't know what we were playing with. Yeah. Uh, it was a long time ago, though. Um, who else did I play with? Did you play with Urbina. Urbina's funny as hell. He's a good guy. What's his game? I mean, he describes his game to me like, I've never played with him, but, you know, just hitting like three wood on every shot. Just oh, no, <laughs> rolling the ball up to the green. 
when I played, I, I played with him at Paso Tiempo after he finished the renovation there, and he still had an old laminated ping driver. <laughs> He's just felt so funny. And then Mike Derviz, Derviz I played with, um, He's very good, very funny. Um, I think I was with him at Cape Wickham. And um, let me see who else have I played with over the years. Did you ever get a chance to play with uh, like like Nicholas or Palmer? No, no. I've covered Jack at the end of his career, and um, I've seen Fazio a bunch at Jupiter Hills because I've been doing work over there. He's a member there, but I haven't played golf with him. Um, oh, Mike Clayton. He's, Down in Australia? Stop, yeah, I can't even stop laughing when I'm playing with him. He's so funny. And I took Frank Casey over there to see some courses, and we played uh, Metropolitan right before the World Cup with Clayton. He's so funny. Yeah. Um, did you ever play in Australia? No, I've not, I have not been to Australia. Okay. There's a situation over there in their summer where as you sweat, all these little black flies get on your shoulders. And I'm talking you know, like 50 or 60 of them. Yeah, I've heard of this. And I said to Clayton, I said, how the hell do you play golf with these damn flies on your shoulders? He says, what flies? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I guess if you've been dealing with it since you were born. <laughs> you, you just had to hear him say it. You know, he's one of those guys that used the F word almost every 10th tenth word in his vocabulary. He's so funny. But, uh, you know, he was a good player. He's the guy that had that video where he fell on his ball right. after a putt. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's involved with Mike DeFries and, uh, and the guy Pont. Frank Pont, from, yeah. Yeah. So the three of them, you know, they've got some good experience. They should be doing some good work, I would expect, in the coming years. Or, yeah, and they've, they've got the globe covered, too. By yeah, no, they're good guys, though. They're all characters, you know, and they're all funny. And yeah. um, I've had them all on this podcast. They're, Have they're you? Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did uh, Clayton do with the F word? Is he okay? I, he, you know, when he does podcasts all the time, and on this okay. one, I think I think a, a few slipped out, but um, I, I've heard from friends that <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a recurring theme in his in his. Uh, he, he would be the best golf announcer in the world if he could change that. I mean, to hear him broadcast a live golf tournament would be fantastic. Oh God, I could, I, I would, yeah. I'm surprised that I'm surprised. Maybe that's why he hasn't done it yet. Yeah, I mean, if he could, if he could tell it, you know, block that out, boy, he could, he could get a good job. But he enjoys caddying, though, and designing courses, and he's he's just living life, having a good time. Agreed. Yeah. What's the um, what's the most uh, incredible or amazing assignment that you ever went on? Hmm. I, I talked to you. You probably, you may or may not know uh, Dom Ferrer, who is the Golf Digest yeah, photographer. I know Dom. He yeah. told me uh, about this trip that he went on to Russia with Jack Nicholas and his and two of his sons, and they flew yeah. over on Jack's plane and they went fishing in Russia for like two weeks. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, wow, that's not too many people who have a story like that. Do you have anything yeah. like that? No, not that good. No, that, but no, <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty unique. But yeah, I mean, you've you've been all over the world. Um, yeah, yeah. What's I mean, it, what sticks well, out? I had, in your mind I, is- I had two good trips. I had this uh, travel agent in South Africa 
who needed pictures for his travel company. So he wanted to hire me to come over. And he took me up and down the coast and put me up and drove me around and introduced me to everybody in South Africa to take pictures. And that was a great trip, and I'm glad I did it uh, in my lifetime when I was working and you know could have access to all these places and get to meet people. And um, I thought that was fantastic. I got to... Um, you know, all the good courses along the coast. The only one I didn't go to was Kruger National Park, which I, I had to get special shots or something to go there, and I elected not to do it. But um, it was interesting to see that country because I had studied apartheid in a philosophy course in college mm-hmm. and was very curious about it. And uh, it was a good experience to see how it was being conducted in real life and how weird it was and um, and that was interesting. And the other one was I, the um, tourist board from Brazil hired me to go shoot their courses. And I went to that in Argentina for uh, oh, almost a month one year. And that was nice to see another part of the world, you know, another hemisphere, and um, see the culture of Argentina and Brazil and how different they really are. But... Um, in very small alcoves of golf there. It's not a real big country sport. You know, soccer is their sport and other things. But there's little little pockets of golf here and there that are pretty good and uh, interesting. Steaks and a red wine were good. And, yeah. You know, so the culture was neat. And, you know, having, seeing... Um, Capital of Argentina. I'm drawing a blank on it right now. Um, yeah, but the, ar- the architecture there was unbelievable. I mean, it was like being in Europe. You know, it was a nice thing for someone. I think I was in my 50s or something when I was there. And um, to see that kind of a culture and experience, that, that sort of thing through my business was um, very rewarding. You know, not so much economically, but culturally to see stuff like that and be able to tell my family and my kids and stuff and how nice it is down there. And you know, I went all the way down to Terral del Fuego, you know, all the way down to the south part and there's a resort down there called Zhao Zhao, which is pretty cool. And it has a golf course and some interesting holes and um, you know, Nicholas had already been there. There was a Nicholas course somewhere in the area and I took pictures of that and um that was that was you know fun, and then all my trips to Australia and stuff were always great. I was you know New Zealand and Australia, um, yeah, just take so many pictures. And it was so much fun, and it's such a learning experience to see you know what Mackenzie did and how all his work rubbed off on everybody that was working in golf in Melbourne. So it was um, historically and culturally very productive. Have you ever, whether it's through golf or some other assignment, have you ever felt in danger or unsafe on, on location? Yeah. South Africa. The, Was it because uh, of, of people or animals or what? Um, primarily people. Um, um, my, my guide, my client, when we went to um, the big cities, he says, you never go out of my sight. You stay in the car unless I go with you. And he lived in a gated house, 
Um, the same was in Rio, you know, in Brazil. You know, I was lucky. I, I flew into um, Sao Paulo, and I had to get a connection to Rio. And luckily, they upgraded me to first class, so I'm sitting in the front. And I get to meet this guy. He's in the oil business, and he happens to be on the board at Gavia, which is the country club right uh, along Ipanema, right along the beach. He says, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm photographing the golf courses for uh, the Brazilian tourism, and I'm supposed to shoot Gavia. And I'm, he says, where are you staying? And I told him the hotel. It was, you know, a quarter of a mile or half a mile from the club or something. He says, how are you going to get to the club? I said, I was going to walk. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're, we're going to pick you up every day you want to go somewhere. We're going to take you to dinner. You're not going anywhere on your own, point blank. Right. You're like, and I'm don't, glad I bumped into you. Yeah. <laughs> so see, he probably saved me for having my watch ripped off and all my cameras and all my money and my passport. Oh, God. Could you imagine walking through certain you know, neighborhoods with all the equipment that you would have? You know, He said I, anywhere on the street they could get you. Broad daylight. Wouldn't matter. Yeah. He said, you know, you you look like a tourist, you dress like a tourist, you dress like a golfer or whatever, and they're just going to corner you and take all your stuff. I said, <laughs> so that was like, you know, you know, a really lucky move on, you know, it just happened. And then every other place I went to, I had English-speaking drivers, you know, I flew all around the country and up the coast and everything and, and saw their, they got a couple of good resorts that have good golf and there's one really interesting one called Terra Vista, which is um, up the coast, in the Bahia coast. And it has a big artist village and also has a club med. Um, but this guy that used to work for um, Pete Dye was working there building courses. And he built a couple of really cool holes on the cliffs there that are some of my favorite pictures. Um, uh, just a... You know, the business has been very good to me in the respect that I got to see a lot of the world that I never would have seen in any other job. Well, I mean, you've done so much. You've done so much work, and uh, you know, you've. I don't know if people realize it. I wish they uh, they would pay more attention to actual photographers if if they don't, because, like I said, you know, I've looked at your you know byline on the photographs, you know, for. 25 years or however long it's been really and it's you know been informative it's you your work is like what makes people like me appreciate golf courses and and want to know more about them you know that's the gateway yeah that's my job yeah that is and you're good at it well let's let's finish on this one larry <laughs> what's the one place or golf course that that you haven't had a chance to to shoot that is high on your list like you want to you want to get there someday I think the eastern links in the UK, I haven't been there. Uh, St. George's. Okay, so like the, the southeast? Yeah. Yeah, rural St. Yeah, that's a, that's a real Yeah, that's a real hole in my library that has always taunted me. And, you know, I did Wales a couple of years ago because uh, I have this... I have the copyright on Links to the World, and um, I want to eventually do a book 
I'll, you know, title the links of the world and incorporate England, Ireland, maybe South Africa and Australia, New Zealand. And, you know, I can't really do it without doing some of those courses in the UK. Um, I think that's probably the place that I professionally want to go see because uh, I know some of them are really good and I just haven't seen them. Um, I know Vietnam and some of those places have some interesting uh, land masses and landscapes. And it's supposed to be kind of duny and all that stuff, but uh, I'm not in a real hurry to go back to the Far East. <laughs> well, it's it's pretty good if you're if you're really your only hole is you know a, a small handful of golf courses in Southeast England. You've done pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's some on the mainland of Europe too that I'd like to see. Uh, which would, if I do do the book, I'd have to do some of those. Like in Germany, there's one or two, and Denmark and Holland, I think, has one or two good links, and there may be one in Sweden um, that are, you know, real links courses that would be worth putting in the book. Um, yeah, had a good life, Derek. What can I tell you? <laughs> Larry Lambrecht has had a good life in golf, certainly from a photography aspect. I really enjoy talking to people like Larry, let's say those interviewees who are seasoned, <laughs> experienced. There's no substitute for experience and candor. And I hope you enjoyed hearing a little bit about his past, his experiences, his travels, his insight into golf, especially into photography. You know, photography has just changed so much over the last couple decades, as you know, and I don't think there's any doubt that the quality of photography is better than it ever has been, and that's due to technology, frankly. Do you remember when the first digital cameras came out and they would be like, what, like two, three, four megapixels? And Larry talked about how even iPhones now have cameras that are 13 megapixels and they fit in your pocket. It's really remarkable. And then on top of that, you have all the digital processing that's making available a wider range of, of saturation and contrast and colors and uh, almost anything's possible. And it's possible and attainable even to amateur photographers. That said, I still don't think there's much of a substitution for being able to be on the ground and find and locate that, that spot, that, that one angle that one perspective that really shows off a golf hole and golf features the way the golfer sees them. Um, I know it's difficult <laughs> because I'm terrible at it. I, I try to do it. I, I can never get into the camera what my eye sees or where I, you know, wherever I stand. I'm, I'm seeing something and it doesn't translate uh, onto, into the photograph. So I know there's a real, real skill to it. And, and the, the great photographers like Larry Lambrecht, and I mentioned Dom Fior, who uh, was the, the in-house photographer at Golf Digest for so long. The Hennebrees, Stephen Serlege, Dost, Evan Schilder's great. They're so I'm, I'm leaving people out, but but people like oh, we're really capable of of hunting and finding that those angles and those perspectives. Um, have a lot of admiration for them. And, and now, compared to what was possible in the 1970s and 80s, the uh, the final image is just superior so in a way it's a it's a golden age of photography but it's also a little bit of a uh there's a sadness that 
that generation of photographer, uh, their skill set won't be rewarded and valued as much because it's just an easier game now. It's easier to get great photography. We benefit as consumers, I suppose, but um, you know, it's saddened when when artistry isn't isn't valuable or rewarded uh, the way it ought to be. Anyway, I'd like to thank Larry Lambrecht for coming on the podcast. Thank you all to listening. Remember to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribe to the show. Leave a star rating and a review. That would help me out. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Once again, thanks for tuning in. Thank you to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.